Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast, where we gather around tables, or um, coffee tables, or just living rooms in general, and discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. We might be a little outside the pale this week as we look at um, Prayer Before Dawn. I almost forgot the name of it, which is all about um, you know the uh, the five pillars of Islam, and uh, one of them being uh, the five time daily prayer, and maybe not. No, I don't believe that that's what this film is about at all. It's fact. it's about the English Daily Office prayer. Um, it's a very Christian version of prayer. I'm sorry, is that a thing? It is a thing. The English Daily Office prayer. Yeah. Now, is it the English Daily Office prayer because it's in English or because it comes from England? It's because it's Anglican, that's, as yeah. it turns out. Gotcha. Episcopal if you're from the States. Ah. So, yeah, we're going to learn all about the Daily Office and the liturgy that is tied up to that. You know, how it's you read an interesting film, yeah. Yeah. Or, or maybe it's about punching people in the face. Mm, uh, I don't even know that it's about that, it's Dustin. Not actually, it's not actually about that either. It's about other things. But before we get any further, let's go ahead and identify these disembodied voices speaking to your brains directly. To my left, sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and I don't have a quote, because there aren't many. There are not many. That is correct. To my right, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and sad, faraway shot, uh, close-up, water dripping down forehead. My name's Dustin Sells, and my also my name is Fame, and I'm here to talk to you all about a Prayer Before Dawn. He's going to live forever. I am going to live forever. Um, so, yeah, that's a movie. It's like sort of, you know, the conceit about Thai Muay Thai boxing and about prison and, yeah, all kinds of things. I'm curious about a thing, though. So if you were involved in a what would what I would call a traditional combat sport, so before 1990 um, sort of combat sport, what would it be? You're I'm asking. asking I'm asking us. you. And you said pre 1990, so pre-ni- we're taking uh, mixed martial arts off the table. Correct. Uh, I'm gonna go just uh, straight up Western boxing then. Yeah, straight up boxing. Yeah. Why? Why boxing for you? Uh, I, I don't have the build for for uh, for judo. For judo. Yeah. Okay. No, that's fair. I got, I got a good reach for a guy my size. Okay. Okay. Arthur, what would you do? Pro wrestling. Pro wrestling. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. I think Muay Thai actually might be a thing I do. Um, I like the use of elbows and knees. I like the it's whole, good. you know, eight-legged, uh, eight appendage. Art of the eight limbs, yeah. Yeah, I'm all about that. So. You know, in um, Laos, they have this thing called Lethway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned this from uh, Frank Grillo and his, his wonderful Netflix doc about fighting. Uh, it, it's basically Muay Thai, but with headbutts. Okay. Yeah, well, it's nuts. I don't think I knew you couldn't headbutt in Muay Thai. Uh, you cannot. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, not in competition. I'm sure that they teach headbutts. Yeah, because, yeah, that, that's a very effective move. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. It's the entirety of Scottish martial arts, it turns out. <laughs> it's just headbutting. Did you know that in the the UK, when they you know they rate a film, their, their equivalent of the MPAA, uh, they frequently uh, have had to shave headbutts out of R-rated American movies. The The Matrix is the first one that comes to mind, but in that fight scene with uh, Hugo Weaving and uh, Keanu Reeves, they had to cut out a couple of the headbutts because it's such a big deal there because of uh, the soccer hooliganism. Oh, People be headbutting each other on the street after games. Well, they do that anyway, though, don't they? Well, yeah, but I mean, apparently the they don't gonna... want them doing it in the films. The kids are going to learn it from their dad. They're not going to learn it from the movies. Look, you're... You're preaching to the to the wrong choir here. I agree with you, but uh, yeah, in, in the UK they don't like the movie headbutts. Okay, well I guess that's a thing. Well, if you're tuning into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, let me warn you: um, there will be tirades, and there will be rabbit holes, and you might learn something. And headbutting, lots and lots of yeah. headbutting. But that's not what you wanted to warn them about, yeah, was it? 
See, just happened. There it is. Right there. Arthur, that's why he's been so silent. Uh, But what we actually do is uh, analysis and not review, and that means we have to do spoilers. But we avoid them for the first part of the show, and it looks like this, a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema. That's Arthur himself. And then we do our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which are spoiler-free. Then we play a game, which may or may not involve the mildest of spoilers uh, regarding uh, this film or films in its orbit. Probably okay this week. And then we get down to business, and all spoiler bets are off. You will find out whether or not um, Mr. Cole gets out of prison or not, and uh, what happens with all that. So, and there's a pretty good chance you haven't seen this film, and that's okay. You know, don't feel like you got to turn it off. You can hang around for the spoilers. It'll be a good primer for watching the film. I think so. I think we'll we'll make your viewing experience all the better. That might help. Yeah, prepare you for this film. I mean, for any film, it's not about how what happens. It's about how you get there. Uh, how it happens and why it happens. But for this film in particular, I, I think it might be good to know what you're getting yourself into. And before we get any further, uh, trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning, all the triggers. Um, Everything. Be warned, um, all of them happen. Everything happens. And so... If, if it's an upsetting topic, it happens in this movie, and we're going to have to talk about it this yes, week. Yes, it, all of them. So you've been warned. Um, so without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's hear that synopsis, please. The true story of an English boxer incarcerated in one of Thailand's most notorious prisons as he fights in Muay Thai tournaments to earn his freedom. So this is like the Thai version of San Quentin? Or... Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we're, we're led to believe it's a real... Escape from Alcatraz. Is, is yeah. this prison even named? Not in the film. Nope. 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 So... Nothing's really stated in the film. Nope. Nope, so uh, it's Ty Leavenworth. We're going to go with that. Um, or Angola. Ty Angola. I mean, yeah, it's bad. It's Ty Take Ry- your pick. Ty yeah. Rikers. We, we really know a lot of prisons. Well, we have a lot of famous ones. Uh, because, <laughs> well, it's the United States, and we have more prisoners than people. But nonetheless, um, that's a whole other conversation that might wait till analysis time. But um, without any further ado, then let's hear our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Um, Dalton, you're the picker of the film, so um, pick this film's nose. I will do my level best. A lot of the noses in this film are swollen shut, so it might be difficult. Yeah, we were going to do the endless this week. Uh, if you missed last week's show, then uh, now's a good time for me to tell you that I had to call an audible on doing the endless because I watched it ahead of time, trying to prepare myself for this week's show. And Arthur said, "No, these are blind spot picks. You've now made that not a blind spot. You have to pick something else." It's like, well, all right. What else is streaming that I, I wanted to catch this year? And it turned out. Uh, a Prayer Before Dawn just went up on Amazon Prime. Uh, I like Joe Cole a lot from his work in Peaky Blinders. He's also an episode of Black Mirror that I liked quite a bit. I like Joe Cole. I like movies about fighting. I am interested in uh, prison films. I don't watch a lot of them, but I'm interested in, the, in them. It's a kind of a, a niche genre. So I said, yeah, let's do this. And yes, a fighting movie and a prison movie is what this film is, but that doesn't really prepare you for what you're getting yourself into much like last week's film mandy it is a film you experience it's not really a film you watch it does a lot of things and doesn't always explain to you why they're happening um unlike with mandy where that's a rip rollick and good time uh it's just the the sad parts of mandy uh turned up to 11 and with none of the uh the mysticism well actually some of the mysticism a little bit but none of the none of the fun color palette stuff just dreary and and drab and unpleasant the entire way through uh it's hard to talk about what actually happens in a prayer before dawn without getting into spoiler territory but suffice to say joe cole is in thailand uh uh, fighting in muay thai uh badly uh and doing a lot of drugs and ends up in prison and 
then proceeds to fight in Muay Thai, but better. And you hear that and you think, oh, okay, I know what kind of movie I'm getting myself in for. I also thought that. I was wrong. It It's very much uh, the, the non-narrative school of filmmaking that we're getting here. It is about what is it like to be in this prison because every single shot of this film is pretty much a close-up on Joe Cole and you're just following him through this prison. Uh, the character he plays is Billy Moore um, and you just follow Billy being in prison and there's not really a sequence to events. I mean, you were pretty much dropped into one scene after another without really any context for how you ended up in the scene that you're in, which is a very disorienting thing to have in a film. I think it's kind of an interesting choice, especially for a film about prison, especially for a film about prison in which the lead does not speak the language. Uh, you were given subtitles very sparingly in this film. Uh, by and large, if Joe Cole doesn't know what's going on, you don't know what's going on. Uh, and occasionally he will be able to fumble his way through a conversation and tie with the help of a third party who speaks a little English that he'll actually get to know people a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about that later in analysis because it's one of my favorite scenes of the film. But uh, by and large, the only dialogue in this film is unsubtitled tie, and you're just kind of watching Joe Colt react to it. And I'm probably losing you at this point uh, if you're not into that kind of movie. And I, I, I can't say as I blame you, even if it weren't for all the horrible things that you see on screen, it's just kind of a disorienting film. For me, I like it. Uh, I like the, that aspect of the film, of just being a fish out of water along with Joe Cole. I don't know that the film interrogates the nature of him being a, a Western outsider in this world, though. Um, I, I have a feeling that the uh, the memoir that this is based on probably gives a lot of background and uh, context that's super helpful for understanding uh, and the, the filmmaking team here has gone ahead and decided that you as an audience don't need that. We as an audience don't need that. And, uh, you know, how successful that is going to be for you is going to be a real mileage may vary thing. I think craft wise, it's a well-made film. But I think at a certain point, this is a film that is either in your wheelhouse or it isn't. Um, and that's just the, the way the dice land sometimes. Film is not a, uh, you know, a thumbs up, thumbs down medium as much as we try to pretend that it is it's a lot more nuanced than that most of the time. And for me, this film works more often than it doesn't, but uh, I can't say that I love it either. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Sir, what do you say, Arthur Gordon? Um, do you like this movie? Why or why not? Um, I think it is a very, 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 very well-made film. It is uh, simultaneously very raw and very visceral, but also super polished. I, I love that juxtaposition. It looks great. It has a, you know, uh, fantastic cinematography. It, it's beautifully shot. Uh, but at the same time, it is very, very, very viscerally in those moments, uh, uh, within, uh, Billy's experiences in the prison. Um, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate the ability to, as Dalton said, we don't get a lot of, uh, dialogue. That's not, uh, you know, uh, in in Thai, it, it's no, no subtitles, none of that, um, except very, very rarely and usually just to kind of help navigate a little bit. Yeah, and it's usually a character that's speaking English is who we get subtitles yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I appreciate uh, the way it's edited and the way the mise-en-scene works to kind of help you navigate this world to keep you understanding what's going on. Uh, because it would be very easy to get lost if it wasn't for that kind of film language to help you along. Almost like a silent film, it's working in a lot of those same ways, I think, to help drive the, the narrative. And it starts very traditional when we first meet Billy and when he's out doing his you know party at the club, getting drugs type thing. 
Uh, but once he goes to prison, it's everything is, you know, very, very at arm's length and it's very intentional. Uh, through that use of not not letting us see the subtitles, not letting us know what's being said, it keeps us in the dark, just like Billy's in the dark. Uh, and I I greatly appreciate the craft here, um, but for me it just never clicked. I I could never really fully buy into it. Um, it is very as, as Dustin said off mic. It's very much about the experience, and it is very very hard to watch at times. Um, but I I feel like some of the character stuff with Billy himself is fumbled. I I, I feel like. Um, it never really, you know, you, you, you mentioned investigating uh, him as a foreigner in, in this, in this place, uh, but also just kind of his struggles with drugs and those things that the kind of post titles allude to, uh, which was kind of a weird choice. I don't know that those post titles really help here. Uh, and I think it's an instance where we don't need that um, because I feel like it informs a narrative that we weren't presented uh, within the film itself. Um, and so that, that kind of struck me as odd, but I mean, it's, I don't know, you know, um, I think talking about it, my opinion might change a little as we, as we kind of flesh it out. Uh, but that initial watch, I, I just didn't buy into it. I, I, I think it's very well made, but I, I, there's something about it. I can't put my finger on, uh, and it's just, maybe it just didn't click for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, from a technical standpoint, it's incredibly well made It's well crafted. Um, and it does a lot to, uh, to really help you understand what Billy's going through and his experiences there. And so for that, I, I, I'm very positive on the way it's made, but overall I don't know that I like the film. All right, well, fair enough, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I think I'm a little warmer on the movie than you guys are, but not a lot warmer. Um, I like it a lot. I think it's a lot of fun um, insofar as it is an interesting... An interesting it, adjective. It is. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, and I, yeah, but fun is really the wrong word, but it is It is absolutely entering into an experience that is foreign to you, which I think is uh, its own sort of pleasure, right? Yeah, uh, for yeah, sure. So that's the fun I'm, I'm referring to there. And um, I used a word uh, with Dalton off mic uh, before. It's Kafka-esque. Mm. Um, this idea, like, you just don't understand what's going on and what the rules are and how to behave, and you find yourself being demoted. It's like playing the Stranger card... in a Strange Land. Yeah, yeah, or playing the card game Mao, if you've ever played it before, um, which is a, 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 a game that you play without telling anybody else the rules. And then you just keep penalizing them for doing the wrong things. Um, and so, uh, and part of the fun of the game is to figure out how to play the game. Mm. Uh, which is, you know, a certain playoff chairman now. And, yeah, no, and all, I, I, all of that. I but, picked up on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I picked up on your red scare game there, Grandpa. But it's fun. It, it's a fun card game, you know, and I, you, you get your, you know, hand dealt out, and then if you pick up the hand, you get, you know, four card penalty for touching cards. And then if you ask for why you're getting a four card penalty, you get another card penalty for asking questions outside of POE, a POA, a PO. Point P O O, yeah, point of order, and so it, it, it's ridiculous. It sounds insane. It, it's it's an insane, very very fun game, and and sort of it's that experience. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't know what's going on, and that full experience of that I think is really really interesting. It's very elliptical in the storytelling, big time. And yeah. so and that's uh, again, you know, that there is a um, there's a uh, taste palette for that kind of thing, and there's a taste palette not for that kind of thing, and so that I understand fully uh, for that. But seeing jujitsu from uh, Green Room. Uh, do a movie, uh, full on. 
one, I, I'm all about this. Uh, Joe Cole's great, man. I like him a lot. And I, I just I want to fill in my brain that he was actually English for a while, and then he came back to the States, put on an American accent, and joined a punk band, and then died badly. Um, you just wanted to be uh, the same character. Well, that's real why, bad. yeah. Well, he, that's why he couldn't stay in the room. He, I'm, I'm, I got to get out of here. Oh, uh, okay. I, I just can't stay because, right. you know, he's got that, that sort of a locked in syndrome, and he just can't live that way okay. anymore. Okay. Uh, that is my, um, my new headcanon for this <laughs> little movie. I like it. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I think it works um, because it's not supposed to work on any other level beyond just this is that awful experience uh, that this person went through and how he found light at the end of that tunnel. And that's all that you're really supposed to take from it, although it does have some interesting interplay with masculinity and uh, with that sort of, again, fighting culture, prison culture. And uh, you do see some of those, um, you know, shades of uh, meaning sort of sprinkled throughout. But it doesn't really, you know, connect all the dots for you necessarily. And I think that's okay. But again, that's not everybody's cup of tea, and that's okay. But I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. And uh, it's a movie that I, you know, again, I make my top ten list, honestly. Um, So it's a movie I definitely, definitely appreciated a lot. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our biases, and you now know where we're coming from when we analyze this movie here in just a little bit. But before we do anything else, we want you to be part of this conversation with us all, and Dalton's going to tell you how to do that. That's right, Dustin. We are much easier to get a hold of than uh, Billy is. Uh, we will never go off the grid on you and uh, end, our, end up in prison overseas. Uh, I hope so. You guys don't plan on doing that, right? Okay. Just making sure we're on the same page there. Yeah, we're on the internet. We're easier to get a hold of than this guy. Uh, we're on Twitter at good underscore trash. That's where you can find everything that we're up to, whether it is posts for new episodes of this show, uh, posts for uh, new episodes of The Praise Down with Ethan and Alex, links to written content that we have up on the website. Uh, speaking of, that website, goodtrashmedia.com. You can find everything we're up to over there. Uh, but that's a little bit harder to communicate. If you want to, you know, talk to us about what you're watching, what we're watching, good underscore trash is a place to do that. If you don't have anything else going on, look, it's a terrible time to be on the internet, you know, use sparingly. Uh, what's an easier way that doesn't involve wading into uh, the nightmare that is social media? Look, I'm not going to say Twitter's as bad as Thai prison, but uh, it certainly tries to give a, a run for its money some days. Uh, just send us an email. It's a lot easier, and you can uh, not have a character limit and really tell us what you're thinking. That's going to be goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for that long-form feedback. Uh, if you feel compelled to donate uh, to what we're doing here, that would be great. You don't have to, but uh, it would mean a lot to us. We're never going to do a whole month where we guilt you about not giving us money. But, you know, we are always going to take this five minutes out from the show for me to ramble until you give us money. Uh, hosting fees are not free. That's why they call them fees. Uh, so you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM to find out more about how you can get involved and how you can uh, throw some dollars our way if that's something that you feel so inclined to do. Once again, that's patreon.com forward slash GTM. More importantly than that, though, we just like making the show. We want people to listen to it, and if you want to help spread our visibility, a great way to do that is to go to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to the show. That uh, does a lot for uh, our metrics or something. I don't know. An internet wizard plugs a thing into a hole, and now people can see the podcast better because you left a review. That's great. Uh, you can also just tell people you like about the show. You can have a conversation face-to-face, just like Dustin Arthur and I are doing right now. Uh Tell somebody you know that likes podcasts or films or both uh, about this dumb show you like. 
And now this part of the show is over and we can go back to having fun. And now it is time to play the game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game. This week's game is our favorite characters from fight scenes. Sort of. Okay. There's our favorite fighters. Our favorite fighters. Yeah. Our favorite cinematic fighters. Our favorite cinematic fighters brought to you by A Prayer Before Dawn. A Prayer Before Dawn. It's not going to stop you from getting walloped, that's for sure. All right. Well, there you go. Um, Favorite fighters from cinema, which ought to be lots of fun, and uh, we know lots of those things. So I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. Uh, my first pick is uh, at the bottom of the list. I don't really know how this ranking system works, and it, it doesn't make sense, it, it, much like anything we do. It feels non-numerically assigned, and I don't know if Dustin meant it to happen that way, but it's kind of what ended up happening. I've always inferred that my first pick is my actually like at the bottom of the list. Right. And the, you always the say the last, best for last. Yeah. Uh, so Dessert. My, my first last pick is uh, from a not very good movie, and that is another Billy. That's Billy Hope uh, from Southpaw, as played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Nice. Um, Primarily, Jake Gyllenhaal in that movie is on another level physically, and and he's just bringing it uh, charisma. I think he does a great job with that character. I don't know. At some point in the last 10 years, Jake Gyllenhaal became our great American actor. Uh, I don't know when it happened, but I'm really here for it uh, every time. And so I I think he does a great job in that movie. Um, You know, he's going through a range of things. He kind of becomes an underdog. Uh, He's got a lot of family stuff going on, and I, I appreciate all those elements. But Hall's performance itself, I think, really sells that. Uh, he looks great in a boxing ring. Um, he's just really into the role as far as getting into shape, and he looks great. And so that's going to be my first pick. All right. Thank you very much for that. What is your number first pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, we are clearly in uh, 2018 rap mode at this point in the year. Obviously, we've just had an entire month of blind spots for Dustin Arthur and myself. Uh, so I figured, let's go off the beaten path. Let's find a fighter who's more a fighter in the existential sense. Let's get a, ourselves a survivor. Uh, and that's uh, Thomas and McKenzie as Tom in Leave No Trace from this year, which is a damn good film uh, that I strongly recommend you catch up on. Uh, kind of went under the radar. Uh, it's from the director of Winter's Bone, uh, her follow-up to that film from, God, like eight years ago now, um, which is really a shame that it took that long for her to get a project off the ground. That's the that's Hollywood for you. Uh, but Thomas and McKenzie and Ben Foster are so great in Leave No Trace. Ben Foster being great is uh, no surprise, uh, but Thomas and McKenzie in her first uh, starring role is really fantastic as Ben Foster's daughter, Tom, uh, who is just trying to help her dad. Uh, and it really is a film, uh, slowly but surely, that shifts from Ben Foster's POV to her POV in a really, really elegant way. Uh, it just kind of weaves uh, these two protagonists' point of view throughout the film. Uh, and Thomason, uh, you know, at first is learning from her father and, uh, slowly but surely throughout the film, you realize she has been listening to her weird survivalist dad and really doesn't need him. Uh, it's, she's not there because he's teaching her how to survive. She's there because he needs somebody to keep him tethered to what's important. And, uh, it's a quiet film. It's a small film and it is a beautiful film and it is a great performance, uh, from, uh, a different kind of fighter. So that's Tom from Leave No Trace is my first pick. 
Excellent, excellent. My first pick is uh, Mickey Rourke from uh, The Wrestler as uh, Randy nice. the Ram Robinson. Yeah. And uh, just love that performance, love that movie a lot. It's an old, washed-up uh, former professional wrestler um, who's going to make one last chance to burn out into the skies. And uh, it's a great movie, and it's, just, it's definitely worth your time. And his performance there, um, it's, not, it's fake fighting, sure, but... Nonetheless, I like it a lot. And there's certainly athleticism that's part of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. For sure. The wrestler. Them's so. fake fighting words. <laughs> I, I am I am fake trying to pick a fight with you. Um and totally, totally fake. Uh moving on, let's go to number next, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say? Uh my next pick. Uh these are all gonna be really recent. I'm sorry. Uh, Mine it, are just too. The, I, I feel like these kind of fighting I mean, there's a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of martial arts stuff in the I'm not really familiar with that whole genre though but uh, my next pick is one tommy conlon as portrayed by tom hardy in warrior yes um just uh, so good he does a great i mean he does a great job with that performance but he brings so much angst and hurt into that role and 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 the way he actually carries that into the ring when he fights and i think the film does a great job of helping uh, of, of using those films to help navigate the emotion and and those themes that are at play especially by the time we get to the end of the film and you know uh, while it's a bit predictable you know the way it's going to play out I, I think it does a great job of still keeping you very emotionally invested and a lot of that is due to both both leads performances but uh, Tom Hardy is just on another level as this kind of brooding hurt dog um, who's just fighting to to survive so, Joel Edgerton was uh, his character is the other Conlon uh, mm-hmm. very nearly made my list of favorite fighters Arthur I yeah. gotta say I watched this movie over Thanksgiving with my oldest son and uh, there was a, there's a moment in there with Nick Nolte and, mm-hmm. and Tommy and uh, Isaiah just reached his little arms around me and gave me a hug and then you know for a 14 year old boy that's a big deal give me a little kiss a little kiss on the cheek while we were watching that movie and uh, it was it's a pretty moving little moment there it's a good movie man yeah it's a very very good movie so thank you very much for that Mr. Arthur Gordon Mr. Dulcester what is your number next pick my number next pick is also fairly recent but a little bit less recent than the ones we've mentioned so far it is Uma Thurman as Beatrix Kiddo the Bride from Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 uh, Uma Thurman just opens a catastrophically gigantic can of whoop ass on every person that comes across her in both of those films, and it never stops being just the coolest thing you've ever seen. Uh, Really, I I think kind of one of the unsung uh, bits of the Tarantino canon, Uh, we've spent a lot of time this last year dunking on him, and rightfully so, uh, but never let it be said that some of those movies are real good. Yeah, that was one of them. Uh, I mean, Huma Thurman is just lights out uh, giving a career-defining performance in both of those films. Um, she has not, unfortunately, I, I feel like gotten a role to sink her teeth into quite like that since those films came out in 04 and 05. But I mean, whether it's the knife fight with Vivica A. Fox, the showdown with the crazy 88, uh, the sequence in the trailer in part two, the cruel tutelage of Pi May, like there's just like so many beats throughout the course of those two films where Uma Thurman is just kicking so much ass but also really really acting uh and i think that that's kind of what defines these good on-screen fighters is not just the good fight choreography the cool shots but can the performer act in those scenes of uh of physical demonstration because that's a big part of it that's the acting is uh as much when you're moving as when you're talking especially in a film about uh fights of any kind so that's my my next pick the bride 
Excellent, excellent. I raise your Uma Thurman, a uh, Hillary Swank in Million Dollar Baby. Okay. And uh, love that movie. And um, she's great in her fight scenes, and she's great doing that sort of uh, fight choreography stuff and those training montages and doing all that sort of uh, physical work that we so oftentimes give your Michael B. Jordans and your uh, Jake Gyllenhaals and your Sylvester Stallones. You know, we give them all this credit for the great work and transformation they do. Hillary Swank does all of that stuff with Million Dollar Baby, and she is, not, not to disparage the acting of any of those great actors but she is and puts on an incredible performance for the film as well um and you know not a bad clint eastwood movie um which is you know not always the case and so uh yeah i like million dollar baby a lot and i like hillary swank as a fighter in that particular film a bunch so moving on number last mr arthur gordon what say you speaking of michael b jordan it is adonis creed uh from creed one and two donnie johnson um Mm. it's it's such a those two movies are so well written as far as that character goes. Just this this person dealing with trying to live up to these kind of parental legacies and, mm-hmm. and the expectations that are on him and, and trying to fight for his own identity uh, over the course of these films and, and fleshing that out and trying to figure out who he is and what he's supposed to be in this world, um, especially once he realizes what his inheritance is. And... Uh, Jordan just does a great job of navigating a lot of that emotion and a lot of that uh, turmoil, that personal turmoil, uh, especially as that loose cannon in, in the first movie when he's really dealing with this anger and he doesn't know how to uh, properly uh, let it out. And so I, I greatly appreciate that. I, I, I greatly appreciate those movies, uh, especially, I, I mean, not having that background of the Rocky films personally. I, I think it does a great job of standing on its own two feet and, and, and really doing something uh, very exciting with that character. Awesome, awesome. I like it a lot, and I like Rocky a lot. I mean, Rocky almost made my list, and uh, so yeah, that's good stuff. I like it. I approve very much. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you for your number last pick? I am so glad I, I changed up my list at the last second, because yeah, that was a- another honorable mention for me, Arthur. Uh, great pick. Uh, my last pick, again, we are in year wrap uh, season, and uh, just got me thinking about last year, and the films that really uh, stuck with Dustin, Arthur, and I from last year, and I, I had to go with a huge jacked man as Logan, uh, from any of the films, but really from last year's Logan most specifically, because it is the film that I think most gets to uh, the heart of this character that Hugh Jackman has very quietly been uh, playing with a lot of pathos for almost 20 years. Uh, and they finally gave him a film to like show the subtext of the character that he'd been acting for all these other movies. And uh, kudos to Hugh Jackman for sticking with it till they actually gave him a, uh, a movie where he got to really act as that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, what a film. And what a character. What a performance. I mean, uh, in this age dominated by superhero movies, uh, there are a lot of actors who have come and gone and have kind of been forgotten uh, that they were in a superhero movie. Some who have had superhero movies kind of tank their career. Uh, but Hugh Jackman just kind of took it in stride and uh, used that first X-Men movie to launch a, a true uh, global international superstar's career. And uh, it's been really impressive, but uh, not the least of which because he brings real pain and heartache and pathos to a character that's, you know, just a Canadian guy with knives for hands. It's a, it's a silly character, but it is a character that he has managed to uh, really... I think, immortalize in uh, public consciousness uh, in a way that, you know, the comics and cartoons came close to, but he really kind of took home and uh, turned that character into a household name. 
in a really, really interesting way. And again, just that performance throughout Logan of this this guy who uh, wants to be good but sees too much bad to know how to be good. Is uh, that's that's the kind of fighter we look for in films. I mean, that's that's the kind of character you want to watch and see grow. So that is my final pick: Hugh Jackman as Logan. Uh, my last pick um, is not surprising to anyone. It's Bruce Lee. I mean, good night. Game of Death Bruce Lee is what I'm going to pick. Although, I, really, Bruce Lee's been playing the same character across all of them. So, you, Shang's in whatever. You know, you could say any number of those characters uh, from his filmography, those four um, lead vehicles. Um, despite the fact that, um, you know, the Klaus um, you know, film was made posthumously, most of it um, was not involving Bruce, but the fight scenes going up the pagoda is all him. And, you know, fighting Danny and Santo, uh, fighting on uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and uh, just the, the athleticism and just the sheer performance of uh, just the physical feats of the fight scenes themselves. Um, Bruce Lee in that yellow tracksuit with those yellow nunchucks is incredible and uh, just one of the greatest sort of sets of fight scenes and really a great idea uh, for a film. It was just too bad he died before it was able to be finished. But I'm, I'm naming all of Bruce Lee, but if I'm going to get specific, I'm going to name like the worst Bruce Lee movie, um, Game of Death, because I do like the fight scenes in it more than probably any of the rest of them. Well, look, it's an uncompleted film. You yeah. Know. So it's only going to be so good. So yeah, well, the, the, your imagination creates the potential in the gaps, exactly. Right? And just like uh, *Pro Before Dawn*, maybe, or could be maybe, maybe haps not perhaps. I Now's guess, the time to find out. Let's just find that out because it's time to get down to business. That's right, dear listener, and we are back, and that business is, as always, analysis, and uh, there's a whole lot of stuff to be talked about regarding this particular film, and I, I'm, I'm a little bit at a loss as to where to start, but... Um, I, I think I've got a place where, where would to you start. rather start? Well, because I, I watched this uh, this movie with uh, my, my fiancé, and uh, Dr. Fiancé did not make it through A Prayer Before Dawn. Uh, we got probably 45 minutes into it, and I was like... I can go finish this by myself. Oftentimes, people don't make it through morning prayers. No, uh, this one was not gotten through. Uh, So the question I kept asking myself as we were watching it together, but then especially as I went to finish it by myself, uh, it became very clear very early on that this movie is going to send Billy to hell for his transgressions. Uh, That is literally the text of the film, but you know, in this kind of like metaphorical sense, that is what happens. Billy does a bad thing. He is caught in the act of being bad and unrepentant and is sent to hell for this transgression. He's a heroin dealer. He's a heroin dealer and a, a general a rabble rouser. He beats up people. He beats up referees. He hurts people. He he's not he's not a he's not a uh, an athlete. He just happens to have found a way to make money off of the fact that he likes smashing people's faces in. Uh, he's not a good dude. And the question I kept asking myself is: This movie going? Is is Billy going to find something in this journey through hell that he'll learn something? Like, will will this mean anything to me as an audience member? Will it mean anything to Billy? And maybe is the closest we get to an answer. And that's just the kind of film that it is. Uh, but I, I guess for me, this, this prayer before dawn that seems to lead Billy uh, to some sort of closure uh, and recovery of his addiction... Does it work for you guys? Do you feel this journey through hell taught Billy anything? Does it, or is it, you know, just sound and fury signifying nothing? I feel like that's that's a good place to 
start. So we're asking the question, does Billy learn his lesson? Why does Billy go to hell? And uh, does he learn anything? Yeah, I guess. Oh, I, I, I think the bigger question, I mean, I, I think obviously he does go to hell. I, yeah. I wouldn't dispute that fact at all. Definitely I mean, hell. I think that metaphor holds water. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, he does seem to come to peace by the end of the film, uh, the way it's played, I think. But I, I don't know where that, that, uh, that uh, transition, I guess I can't think of the word, uh, really takes place. That where where that kind of key unlocks for him. I, I don't know where it is. I mean, we kind of have that. We have that. What in a, a, a traditional sports movie would be kind of the triumphant final battle uh, in the Muay Thai tournament, um, and then he goes to the hospital. Um, he kind of does his thing there. Um, but I, I don't really feel where it shows that it's unlocked for him. I think the only moment we get close to it is right where you're talking about, Arthur. So um, if, if you decide to skip the film, uh, Billy, through just getting the shit kicked out of him uh, by fighting and also doing a lot of drugs, is having some sort of internal hemorrhaging. And if he fights again, it could kill him. And uh, he ends up in the hospital, does the fight anyway, gets hospitalized, is taken out of the prison to an outside hospital, and realizes he can just wander out. And he does. And he looks down an alleyway outside of the hospital and is very clearly shown that he's got the choice to just go. And he chooses not to. And I, I think that's the closest we get to any kind of understanding where Billy makes a choice. Because Billy doesn't have a lot of choices to make in this film. I mean, no. he's just kind of pulled along by the events as they are unfolding. And it's the one moment that definitively Billy has a choice about what he wants to do. Does he want to run or does he want to go back and finish out this prison sentence? And he decides to go back. Uh, and, and I think that's the closest we get to maybe him saying, I've done wrong and I do need to like figure something out about me before I can go back and be in the world. But I'm with you, Arthur. It is just because of the elliptical nature of the film, as Dustin pointed out. You know, our imagination is left to fill in those blanks for Billy. And that's that's fine. It's just I don't know that I want to think like Billy for that long. I don't. This guy kind of sucks. Uh, you know, I want him to I don't need the film to tell me who Billy is. But I need to I need to, to sketch me a little bit more. I don't want to fill in all the blanks myself. For I, for me, I just don't think the breaking point ever warrants the the redemption. Yeah. At the end of the film, like I I don't know that it ever hits enough, and and maybe it's not trying to. I don't I don't know, but I feel like the way it resolves it. Fair, I mean, it feels very peaceful. Mm-hmm. But I I don't feel like that path back to redemption there at the end is it really has that kind of um, juxtaposition of tension that it should to really. Uh, push that point home but i mean for me that's almost true to life that people do feel bad sort of but not that bad and that repentance is always sort of in half measures and partial measures and that um you know learning your lesson is sort of just the luck of making the right choice at the moment that sort of signifies that i've learned my lesson and then in hindsight go yeah i'm glad i made that decision not so much that that decision was a sort of crucial sort of turning point in my life that most of the time when we when we make those sort of moves they they do come in drips and drabs uh rather than the sort of you know big you know crescendo of a moment and so he just says you know what i probably should stay in jail you know i should go ahead and stay in prison finish my term even though it's awful but not so much because not necessarily even because he thinks he owes a debt to society as much as he thinks this is a bad idea yeah no i think that's what it got. i mean we do get some sense, some hints that Billy is changing. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the this uh, 
trans character that he has a relationship fame uh works the commissary at the prison and uh he and her have a relationship together uh and she realizes or uh, billy realizes that she is sleeping with another one of the tie boxers Mm -hmm. and he hauls off and just throws down on this guy and the first thing he does when he gets out of solitary is try to make uh penance to this guy just say i fucked up i'm sorry i shouldn't have done that shouldn't have done that i know i don't speak the language and that's that's a real choice he is choosing to go to a place where somebody wants to hurt him, knowing he does not speak the language, trying to apologize. Well, I mean, that's where he, he lives puts, now. He puts himself in danger in an attempt to make right. Uh, see, again, he goes back, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with the idea that, yes, he's, he's trying to make things right. But you're right. With the guy, he, but he lives with the boxers. Now. I have to live with this guy. Yeah, because all so, the boxers live together. And so I'm, I'm just not going to let it bother me that he did what he did or that she did what she did and you know all of that, and I'm just going to try to move on. And what I need to do in this situation is apologize. Not necessarily be sorry, but I need to apologize. Now, maybe he is sorry, maybe he isn't, but again, that is sort of more real to life. I agree. Yeah, and I think that's that's the one hint that we get leading up to that moment where he could leave prison, that he is changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see, I guess for context, if you did skip the film, um, after seeing some pretty uh, heinous stuff, uh, Billy tries to kill himself. Yeah. Uh, and that's the closest we get to a scene where Billy is choosing to try and stay clean because there's an actively scene that seems like a relapse later on in the film when he he, uh, starts using again. Um, But again, these are all left in for us to infer. And I I do like that aspect of it. You're right, Dustin. I agree with you there, but I'm also with you, Arthur, that it's just, there's too many blanks. You know, we don't get enough of what Billy thinks about this situation, what he feels about the situation to really infer anything. And Dustin, you're right. That is probably more true to life. All we can judge Billy on is his actions. You know, he doesn't get an internal monologue to justify himself to us, but I don't know that it makes for a compelling film. I think it makes for an interesting film. Right. I, mean, I don't know how compelling it is. That, that, that's not the way narrative is told. I mean, yeah. so that's, that's, that's the way lives are lived. You're right. Yeah. It's not the way we tell a story. And the, and the truth of the matter is, not, and, you know, I think we should be more suspicious of narrative in those sort of monologues and, for uh, sure. you know, that kind of thing, because everyone is telling the story in which they're the hero. Right. And even when it's a third person sort of narration, if they're picking a main character, we sort of, again, begin to draw that character in more heroic strokes. And this film's stubborn refusal to make him into a this sort of heroic, you know, I'm overcoming my my terrible situation, my my addiction. I'm uh, overcoming these thoughts of being a bad person. It's no, you know, and I I, I like the end of the end titles that he continues to, um, you know, fight for sobriety, which gives the implication that relapses have continued to be a problem yeah. uh, for Billy Moore. And I, I think that's that's true to life. You know, again, you know, relapse. I mean, again, when we start talking about the recovery from addiction narrative of this film, is it, it, rarely does a person come out of any sort of addiction and it, it's an utterly clean break at any point you know the way that i i think of i was thinking about the uh jamie fox ray movie mm-hmm. you know in which um you know obviously heroin being the drug of choice in that film as well it gives this idea that ray charles after this you know one-time arrest and sort of getting his life together that he never went back to the junk again and i go probably not that's probably not what happened but he never got caught and that he chose to retell and tell that narrative in a way where it was a, a thing where he just, with his gumption and his willpower, moved past that. And I go, that's not typical. I mean, it not, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, and there are people who haven't you know, laid down whatever that they've laid down. But that being said, most people don't. And I, I like the sort of messiness 
of that narrative. Well, I like that juxtaposition you bring up because we're so conditioned by these biopics, right? That mm-hmm. have this, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody came out earlier this year and kind of got criticized for doing the, uh, the Dewey Cox thing where it, it hits every one of those kind of formulaic beats. Hold on. Of, I'll go on stage right after I think about my whole life yeah. and everything that led me to this moment. Yeah. yeah everything. You know, and, and so it is refreshing to kind of see a biopic that just lays it out on the line and it's not easy. It's not simple. It's not the kind of, a rise and fall uh, narrative we're used to in, in these traditional biopics that we're so familiar with where, and, and that's probably where I, I'm getting lost is because, you know, we do have that crux moment where, Oh, I've got to make this change and we have this path back to redemption. Uh, uh, but it does lay it out in a more honest light, I, I think here in, in uh, prayer before dawn. And so uh, it's, it's a good juxtaposition to, to view it through that idea of, you know, the biopic genre, and those kind of tropes and, and to see where it's kind of subverting a lot of those expectations. And I think a good moment to sort of look at just to think about this sort of, again, messiness and ellipticalness is the uh, the Sphinx face of the real life Billy Moore that appears at the end of the film. So, uh, again, spoiler alert, um, we've already told you that this is going to happen anyway. But at the very end of the film, um, the father of Billy shows up at prison and uh, just, they're across the glass. There's not a single word of dialogue. There are some looks upon his face. And then we later find out that the character that's playing, uh, rather the actor um, that's playing the father, is the real-life Billy Moore, which I think is a fun touch. Um, but that being said, what does that face say and communicate in that moment? And what is it? And I think you know what we're going to find out is whatever we're bringing to it is what it says. But <laughs> I, I like that about that. So what do you guys get from that movie or that moment in the movie? To me, it's it's a it's a moment of understanding and acceptance and and maybe a little pride uh, on on the father's part I, I i think there's that kind of unspoken bond of you're doing the right thing you know finish this out see the fight through um which i i think is kind of what i took away from that moment when when because there's that little kind of grin and that little smile on there's the lips. a smile yeah and, and and so i i think and that's i think where that full uh, path to redemption you know that kind of point happens where we see that peaceful ending like i i feel that's where the peace comes from is they've they've reconnected because we we're led to assume there's some sort of tumultuous relationship there between him and his father they don't speak he gets a letter we don't know what that letter says i don't i don't think it's ever revealed um and he's you know we, we, it's hard to gauge his reaction when he gets that letter because he's a little taken aback but he's been very thankful about to the uh, warden or insert title um of, of the prison and then to have that reconciliation at the end, I think kind of brings that arc a little full circle. And I think it is a moment of kind of grace and pride almost. It's, oh, sorry about that. It's interesting because we kind of assume that it's the dad just because it's laid the groundwork for a a reconvening with a father figure throughout the film. Uh, but then the immediate reveal that that is the real Billy Moore that we were just looking at kind of leaves it open to interpretation uh, as to, you know, do we want to read this as a moment where the character Billy Moore has a reconciling with his father, or do we want to read this as a moment where the real-life Billy Moore gets to have a reconciling with this fictionalization of his story? Mm. It, it's kind of a, a, a weird choice that I, I like a lot. It's it's a really cool move, because it's one thing to introduce the father character and then say an hour later, by the way, that was the real Billy Moore. It is another thing entirely to fade to black and then fade back in and say, this is Billy Moore that you were just looking at. It's a totally different choice. And we assume it's the father uh, because that's what, you know, narratives have conditioned us to be ready for. Mm-hmm. But we don't, aren't ever told that. 
Uh, we aren't told that this isn't just a meta moment where fake Billy and real Billy are meeting. So it could go either way. I think if we do want to read it as uh, Billy and his father finding each other, uh, I think it is a, a look that just says, I'm glad you're okay. But also I think it's the same thing. If it is just the real Billy Moore looking on Joe Cole playing him, it's a look that says, I'm glad I made it through this and somebody that made a movie about this dumb shit that I went through. Like, I'm glad it amounted to something. So in either case, I think it's a, it's a very touching moment. It just, you know, you can read one of a couple of different ways. Well, see, and I, I agree. I, I tend to think that we're supposed to interpret it as the father, for sure. But that being said, I think the meta thing is definitely at work there. But I read his face in the initial moment as really disappointment. That he is initially just really, and but but relieved, disappointed, but relieved that he's still alive, and then the smile I read as forced, but genuine. Okay. It is I am choosing to give you a smile right now because what you need from me is what I'm going to give you. Um, I could give you the lecture, I could give you the you know this is the catastrophic mistake you've made, and you know I told you you know or whatever you know a, a dad might say in that kind of situation. What but, would you say is the only father here, Dustin? Oh man, see, I mean, I, see, and that's the thing I think about is, yeah, is, is what do you say? If I find my boy in Thai prison, of course I'm relieved that I found my boy, right? Um, but at the same time, I can't let I can't say you know. Bully this for is, you. <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm glad you won your fight, you know? I mean, that's the last thing on my mind. But I also realize this is what you need from me right now. And I am choosing to give you what you need right now, which is, again, this sort of smile, this sense of pride, the sense of I'm on your side, because that's the thing you need to hear from me. And that, those things are true. But those are not necessarily the first things as a father that you might be feeling in that moment either. Um, not just, wow, good job, you know, winning this sort of, you know, Muay Thai prison championship. I'm so glad, you know, again, bully for you. No, no, I'm not really feeling that so much. I, I'm feeling, oh, boy, what have you done? You know, I mean, that's the, that's the first thing I'm thinking. And I'm thinking, oh, your face, what is it? You know, I'm, I'm scared for you and I'm still scared for you. But what you need to know is I'm here for you. And I think communication of that again, and that's what one brings to that moment. And I and I think that's what the film wants you to do is to bring your own baggage and then you know wrestle with the events as they take place. Well, let's talk about uh, some subtext. I think that's going on in this film. It's yes. very interesting. Uh, Billy the colonizer. Yes, indeed. Uh, look, uh, people aren't just being mean to Billy because he looks different. They're being mean to Billy because uh, European you have it. European people uh, showed up in Thailand a while back and started taking advantage of it. Woo, it's cold and flu Are season, ladies it? and gentlemen. It is cold and flu season. Hi, I'm going to make it. Uh, but it's it's interesting, right? I mean, Billy mm -hmm. shows up there as a colonizer to uh, have their to, to fight the fight the fights and do the drugs and party with the women and uh, take advantage of this land where he doesn't think his actions are going to have consequences. Uh, well, that's not really how it works out. Yeah, and it goes very badly for him. And I kept thinking about Spivak's, you know, um, famous Kenneth Subaltern speak, mm -hmm. right? And in this moment... The Go ahead and get, I only know this because you brought it up before. Go ahead and give context. For this idea about. that in literature that oftentimes the voiceless one is often the, again, the sort of uh, oriental, you know, again, that sort of Edward Said kind of sense, oriental, yeah, um, as opposed to the Occident. Yes. Right. 
Um, Dustin, to be clear, is using the terminology that th- this writing was given uh, when it was written. Right. And I mean, I, I think Orient as opposed to Occident is an interesting way to sort of think about this. But the subalterns are these, again, you know, the enslaved, colonized characters that oftentimes are not given the privilege of speech or their their, their ability to speak is very much hampered. And in this case, everyone else is communicative except for uh, Billy Moore. And so, yeah, the other characters are subalterns only if you are uh, watching this film and don't speak Thai. Yeah, but they themselves, they know what's up and they know what's going on and they are the ones who have the greater understanding. And so I, I do think, you know, we can have this sort of, you know, great white hope kind of thing working out as he's um, the best fighter and is able to sort of represent the prison well and the first foreigner to do those sort of things. And all of that's going on, you know, in a, in a sort of traditional um, sort of uh, Western narrative. But at the same time, there is he doesn't say much and he doesn't under, he understands even less. And uh, so there's a weird way in which this movie gives much more voice to everyone but Billy Moore. The interesting thing, though, is that all of these characters who have voice have no names correct are not given fame as the only character other than billy that i can remember uh tiffany uh mm-hmm. being the other uh another trans character that he has a, a bond with uh mm-hmm. their relationship doesn't become romantic it's more of a oh kid you are in such deep shit um but yeah none of these characters yes if you speak thai you know what's going on, but this is not a film that was marketed. You know, this is an A twenty four release. This is a, right. an American and uh, you know Canadian release. Well, so uh, what Canal Plus is well, uh, so yeah, probably got a French, French and yeah. English release too. Because you're right, it had a couple of those European uh, tags on there. But it's an interesting choice. I, I think you're right, Dustin. I think that's what the film's going for. I wonder how successful it is though, because as far as you know, the Western viewer of this film goes. That's just a scary Thai dude with a bunch of face tattoos yelling at uh, Pretty Boy Joe Cole. Uh, that's just a bunch of Thai dudes doing a gang rape in front of Joe Cole. Like it, it is a sequence of increasingly horrific events that Billy is either forced to take part in, or to watch, or to have done upon him. And it's all these, you know, yellow and brown faces doing it to him, and it's it's messy, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be messy. Yes, I just I wonder how successful it is in punishing him uh, for his, you know, wanton misuse of Thai culture and how much it is just uh, exploitation and scare factor of, uh, you know, unfamiliar faces and and sounds. And I think it's a mixed bag. I think it ends up being a mixed bag. I I think what it does is it does make him the the white invader. It does make him a bad guy for doing what he's done. I think you're right. I think it uses that to subvert this, you know, great white hope thing, right? Right. It could very much have gone down that road. And I I think maybe those are why those choices are there is to keep the narrative from going that way. Right. But at the same time, it continues in some of those same veins as well. And again, I think, again, can the subaltern speak that great um, Spivak article? Uh, might be an interesting uh, bit of a, a complimentary reading uh, with this particular um, film. Now, let's talk about gender stuff, because, I mean, the sexuality and uh, whatnot in this film is off the wall. Um, so we've got, you know, we've got the gang rape thing. We've got the prettiest, thinnest, you know, um, a fellow Thai prisoner who comes in the same time as um, Joe Cole does, and uh, he is gang raped, and then he commits suicide. We've got trans women. Um, who are, to an extent, sex workers? For it could go. It's it's not. I mean, the sex work being a thing that 
is often the the fate of a lot of trans people in all parts of the world, but especially in Thailand, there's a huge uh, not just sex work but also entertainment culture. Um, the the intersection of like trans culture and drag culture is a very interesting di- Venn diagram in Thailand. Yes. It's it's not something I know enough to talk about, but enough I know enough about it that I feel like we should mention that we know it's complicated and like very different. Uh, it's both because of the the Buddhist uh, you know the, the strength of Buddhism in Thailand and you know reincarnation. There's a lot more acceptance, but also because of Western colonization. It's got, you know, it's been demonized like it has been a lot of places like India where uh, you know, different gender presentations are were more accepted in their, you know, pre-contact cultures. So it's complicated, but we don't know enough to really talk about that. So I just, I want the listener to know we're aware that there's a lot here. I, and I think there might be an impulse for a, a viewer of this film to look at it and maybe want to make it liberatory, to make it a moment where we've got this super butch, super macho, you know, typical Western masculine character in this relationship, mm-hmm. you know, with a trans woman. And uh, to say, well, see, here we go. You know, there's a there's a fluid sexuality. You know, there's this thing. But I, the way the cinematography works, there's a there's a couple of love scenes. Um, one of them sexual. The other one is just sort of like a uh, precoital, perhaps. But we don't really know uh, regarding that. And I have to say, the way the camera uses and 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 views Fame's character, that she is. She's a woman. She it spends she, a lot of time on her breasts. Yeah, yeah. it does. And it, so she she ceases she ceases to be trans in all of its um uniqueness and she becomes basically just well this is this is a woman in this moment as opposed to again the sort of gay rape that happens earlier in the film. I get what you're saying. I I think Dustin if I, if you don't mind me putting words in your mouth real quick. We'll see the, if they fit. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Uh the the rape scene that happens is very coded as a, a homosexual act whereas the consensual lovemaking that happens is shot in a pretty heterocentric way mm-hmm. i mean it's it shot the way you would see a heterosexual love scene shot right is that kind of what you're getting exactly at? That, yeah. yeah that all um uniqueness to that that sexual expression is kind of taken out of it by the filmmaking the, language. the male gaze is alive the in male, that moment. For, i think so yeah, yeah. and it, it in a similar way that you might i mean the, the we, we did a similar kind of reading when we looked at the love scene in maholland drive mm-hmm. that is definitely shot by a dude mm-hmm. right and uh, this moment here, it, it it still it still feels like a standard sort of heteronormative love scene. I mean, we know narratively that fame is trans, but we don't know it really from the cinematography. We don't know it from the images that we're experiencing. I, I guess my only thought that I would have that would justify that choice is that it is choosing to frame that scene the way Billy sees it. Mm-hmm. It, it is a genuine moment of loving tenderness that Billy is having in this nightmare of a place that he's in. Right. So it's it doesn't want the audience to get caught up in those things. You know, if it, uh, if it, if we're talking about a viewer who is, you know, less comfortable with that that expression, I, maybe that's what the film is trying to head off with the past and is just trying to get the audience there emotionally to understand what's going on in that moment. I don't know. It could go either way. It feels to me like it reads Billy as straight and that fame is just the next best analog. I don't know that it reads that way, though. I mean, I think it reads as Billy is straight and fame is a woman. I mean, I think that's how... I I get what you're saying, that 
the film wants it to be sexually complicated, but not shoot it in a way that's sexually complicated. Right. Yeah. It it wants it wants there to be a subtext of uh, fluid sexuality, but it wants to shoot it like it would shoot any other sex scene. Right. And I get what you're getting at. And I, I'm trying to remember. There's a moment earlier on in the film where they're looking through the gate at women coming by, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's Fame and uh, the rest of her trans cohorts. I think it's actually women on the street. And the- I don't know because later on, Fame and some of the other uh, trans prisoners, you know, put on this karaoke show or right. whatever for yeah. for the. I think the implication that I'm getting is uh, that the uh, the trans prisoners are kept maybe in uh, maybe a separate housing unit of yeah. the prison for, their, so is that for safety reasons. Then, is is that moment those women in a separate unit or is that? I thought moment- it was. See, I know I kind of felt unclear. like it was women from the street, and that his longing was for a woman, and then mm. the next scene is with fame. See, and this is where an elliptical film like this can get complicated in the reading. It it you got to watch a movie like this a lot to get everything out of it. Right. now, I don't know that I want to watch this movie again. I'm not doing it again. Yeah, it's very upsetting. So um, there is a lot going on in the sexuality of this film, for sure. It's just because of its elliptical nature, it kind of makes it hard to parse at times. Okay, well, let's move into something a little bit more meta from the text of the film. And the the you know as you watch the film in the opening moments, you see Canal Plus, you see A twenty four, you also see the official selection at the Cannes Film Festival um, as part of what we're looking at when we're dealing with this movie. And so I, I want to just talk about those labels regarding this film and films of its ilk as a marker of film connoisseurship. Right. So when we see an A24 label, are we sort of automatically uh, inclined to say this is better, that we like it more? Sort of like that Criterion Collection label um, as applied to sort of uh, art house cinema of the 50s and 60s and beyond. Um, Does do and does that A24 label sort of carry that same kind of notion for us now? Are we at a moment at when we look at film where we are as interested in production companies where we sort of make general assumptions? It gets general assumptions of goodwill uh, from us before we even begin. And um, does this film like live up to some of that? A24 has carved out this sort of niche as the not so art house art house film studio right i mean it's the genre film art house yeah, it, yeah it's putting out these very independent films some of them deal a lot with existential type of narratives or or uh, uh what first reformed what's the uh oh transcendental transcendental thanks yeah um you know it, it's dealing it, it, it implements some of those elements into a very classical style of filmmaking um, and it, it draws from a roster of kind of indie darlings and, and actors who have kind of are making a name on the ind- independent uh, realm. Uh, and, and with that, I think they've built a lot of goodwill. They started out, you know, really out of the bat with Spring Breakers is really right. where they made their name. They had done some distribution before that. And, and primarily they were working earlier as a distribution company, right? They're distributing a lot of these titles uh, before really producing their own work. Um, but I, I think that that name, when you hear A24, they've they've become this kind of auteur force behind their films. They are the selling point. It is an A24 film that, and for I mean, they sell their merch. You can buy A24 merch. I mean, they are mm-hmm. very much a cult of personality. I think Annapurna is another um, yeah. film house that we could cite as well. And Bloomhouse is becoming there yep. as well, and a more probably a more. Oh. Uh, uh, 
mainstream. A little bit yeah. more commercial yeah, version commercial. of the same well, stuff. I was so. say, Annapurna's hurting for money a lot yeah. more than A24 and uh, Bloomhouses, yeah. as I understand it. From Yeah, I've, I've gathered. Yeah. Uh, but which, A20, which sucks, but... Yeah. A24 is really, I, I think, built a lot of goodwill, and it doesn't form the type of film you're probably going to see. It's It's going to be independent. It's probably going to have some non-traditional elements to it. You know, it's not going to be the purely classical genre film you might be familiar with. It's probably going to have some kind of artistic merit to it. I, I think it does inform a lot of that. And they've got a strong track record. I mean, they've they've gotten behind a lot of very good films, especially in the last few years. They've had a solid run of movies. Um, and so, I mean, sometimes you'll stumble across one that's not, a, you know, not quite a knockout of the park. You know, I watched uh, Never Going Back uh, a few days ago, which came out earlier this year, a 24 film kind of in the vein of a Spring Breakers um, and it, it was a lot of fun. It's kind of this stoner comedy type film, a Cheech and Chong esque, uh, in that vein. Um, but just because it has that a 24 on it to me, I'm already like, I, I probably need to see that. Cause that might be worth checking out. That could crack a top 20 list that could crack a top 10. Um, and, and they've really carved out a niche that you go. I think it's interesting that we've kind of come full circle back to this studio driven style of, of filmmaking where we've got, it's a Disney movie. It's a Marvel movie. It's a 24. It's, it's bloom. I mean, bloom is truth or dare. It wasn't the director's name. It wasn't the actor's name. It was a bloom film. We've come back into this kind of cult of the studio. Yeah. It's very interesting. Arthur, I'm right there with you. I see some things being distributed by a 24. I feel like, Oh, I've, I've got to get out and watch this. I mean, if it's something like first reformed, you have me at Ethan Hawke, but uh, never going back is a great example. I see A24's name on it. I got to go see it. A Prayer Before Dawn is a great example of that. I mean, I think actually we talked about it last week was I think A24 being the distributor was something we shouted out when we shouted out why we're going to watch it. Well, even when we did uh, Revenge of the Green Dragons, which is distributed by A24, yeah. that was another thing we touted at that point, that this was an A24 film, yeah. but we're going to see what it's about. And but, I find this transition here interesting because they, they, they're doing the old thing and the new thing. So it opens up with this sort of, again, official selection from Cannes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, still these films will be picked up by Annapurna, by by A24, by Bloomhouse yeah. or whatever, and they'll have TIFF or Sundance or uh, you know the Venice Film Festival or something like that at the front end of them, but I don't see that film connoisseurs now are saying this showed it can I want to see it this this opened at Sundance yeah. I want to check it out though it was picked up by this particular distribution company arm of a production studio that I respect that's what I'm looking at now which is just a just a strange and interesting development it certainly I, is. I, I think a lot of those festivals still carry some weight, but and I think a part of it's just the marketing. I was went to see the wife, and there were several trailers before that had several, you know, grand jury prize, mm-hmm. official selection of you know whatever festival it came from, uh, you know, uh, official entry from uh, what's Cold War? I can't the Poland maybe is that where Cold War's from? I think so. Um, but you know, it had the official selection of Poland for the ninety first Academy. Like I, gotcha. I, they're still touting those mm-hmm. those titles and those festivals, and I, and I think. I think those are a little more niche, though. I mean, if you're not kind of in into film at a certain level, you don't know what TIFF means. You don't know what Con is. You don't. You know, I mean, Con's probably the most known. Sundance is probably a little more familiar to America. Um, but you know, you start getting onto some of those smaller festivals. People just don't know what they are. But A24 can be a lot more recognizable, yeah. especially with the rise. I think you know, quote unquote, film Twitter has has changed the game quite a bit as well. Yeah, that's a weird thought to have, but I can't disagree with you there. Uh, I, I think the the Canal Plus and Cine Plus, uh, you know that mm-hmm. that European branding. I think that 
almost communicates more than A24. I think with A24, you're expecting like a certain amount of like uh, well, pedigree the- in terms of quality, but it's th- those that European financing, I think, primes you for a uh, well, a less narratively driven film, mm-hmm. which is what we ended up getting, right. So yeah, I'm just you know again, I'm not really talking about again a house style or yeah. something like that. With the, with we could do that, and uh, there's certainly those kind of things at work with A24 and with other film studios. But I I do think that it, the labels themselves um, become uh, brandings that again thinking in terms of like fine wine, you know, mm-hmm. like this is this is a good vineyard, so these are going to be the good kind of grapes, yeah. even though this might be a Pinot Noir as opposed to your Pinot Grigio. But they're all from the same sort of Burgundy region of France. Or I mean, we're going to get very, very French with my metaphor here. But the point being that we have a certain thing to expect from an A24 or an Annapurna. Or, well, it's you know, like Miramax. Yeah, Miramax. Miramax in the 90s, carried yeah. a lot of weight behind it in the true. 90s and 2000s. I mean, it, and it, it was kind of the predecessor of what A24 has kind of picked up and run with since the fall of Miramax. Right. I think th- I think some of those guys that run A24 actually came up at Miramax, uh, interestingly. Which I'm sure out. they did. I mean, yeah. the, all of the, the head names at A24 came up as, you know, distributed, working for other distribution companies before they started their own. So, uh, yeah, it checks out. I mean, it is it is an interesting, as you said, Dustin, it's both old and new. So uh, I, I want to backtrack real quickly. Um, we, were, we moved out of... Um, the the sexuality of this film so quickly I, I forgot to mention um, the the shooting of the fighting is interesting oh, yeah. the the intersection between the way this film shoots uh, sexuality um, and violence and you know where the two meet um, is very interesting because they're all shot the same way mm-hmm. whether it's a you know a fight or a, an assault um, or a love scene it is all shot shot very close close very tied up and it most is, of the action happens off the edge of the frame yeah it, yeah it is shot the way billy is experiencing it which i think is a it's interesting the way this film tries to choose us to draw that very direct line between um bodies making contact regardless of the context of that it's just saying this is these are people trying to get out and touch another body it's a it's a weird call but uh, I think it is one of the, the more effective things that the film does. Uh, and I just want to talk about the experience of watching uh, bodies in contact in this film viscerally. Yeah, well, I, I think it's very much, without being sort of gimmicky, uh, a first-person perspective film. I mean, that's what it really nails um, quite well, I think, um, without being, again, sort of like a POV Hardcore cam- Henry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hardcore Henry, kind of a POV camera all the time. Uh, I'm thinking about those opening moments of, uh, oh, golly, what's the Humphrey Bogart um, plastic surgery movie again? with Dark Lord, Passage. Dark Passage. Um, it, it, you know, those sort of opening moments where you're seeing his arms. And, Halloween. You know, Halloween, mm-hmm. you know, those opening moments uh, where it's, you know, this is what we're going to experience. It's just, no, we're really living with this character. And we'll look at the character sometimes and we'll look from the character. And there are POV shots that occur in the film. But most of the time it is a third person, but it's a third person only catching, again, what uh, what Billy Moore is experiencing. And so when someone hits him in the face, you see that. Right. Uh, when you see him punching and beating up these uh, this group of Muslim prisoners for this prison guard, you see his body at work, but you see their beating happening, again, off the frame for the most part. Because for, he doesn't experience what they experience. He doesn't feel what they feel. All yeah. we feel is him and his hand and his fist doing what his hands and fists are doing. And so it, it, it's a way in which you ca- capture perspective 
from the third person. Uh, that's again, I think brilliantly done and very, very well done. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly effective way to shoot those scenes, uh, especially the the chaos, mm-hmm. right? Because fight choreography is fantastic. It's the thing we love uh, here, and it's the thing we talk about a lot. Um, but fights aren't choreographed. Uh, that's that's not how fights happen. Uh, whether they are, you know, uh, on the street or in a ring, they just kind of happen. And I think this film does a really good job of. Uh, making it unclear what aspects of these boxing matches are choreographed. Because, look, uh, we've, we've talked about Creed uh, and Warrior both uh, this episode, Arthur. Uh, those are films that I love, uh, films with great fight choreography. Uh, what this film does, you can hardly call choreography, because it, it, it is not clear to me that Joe Cole and these people aren't just boxing. It takes all the poetry out of it. Yeah. It evacuates it of any balletticism, yeah. you know, which it, is... It know. is just people getting hammered in the face, and it's not fun. Uh, it, it's a very interesting choice. There's a, a long take, speaking of, though, uh, that, that's not to say that it's all, like, up close, uh, you know, Paul Greengrass shooting. There is a long take of a boxing match in this scene, in this film that is lights out. It's mm-hmm. just remarkable to watch. It's it, it's as good as anything in Creed or Warrior. Uh, I mean, it, it is really that that impressive to watch, this one scene in particular. It's about the halfway point of the film. I think right. it's the first fight he has after he gets to prison, the first fight in a ring he has. And uh, wow, it's a great, great bit of shooting. Um, but yeah, I just found that the just whether it's, you know, somebody rubbing oil on him or Vaseline on his face before a fight, like all of these moments where Billy's in contact with another body uh, are shot in a very similar way. And I just thought it was an interesting choice. And I was thinking about that when we were discussing the the sex scene with him and Fame, right? It's it's interesting that all scenes are kind of shot in that. Not necessarily. Well, sometimes all of them are kind of in soft focus and uptight. It's it's an interesting choice. One, I think narratively it works in a way that's interesting. The ways that fights work because it's sort of surprising when you win. It's surprising <laughs> yeah. when it's over. And so that last sort of climactic moment when he throws a spinning back elbow, um, you. You sort of know it's coming because there's been enough practice scenes that then mm. you have not seen any elbows being thrown. You know he has that move in his repertoire, yeah. And, and so you're waiting for it to happen, but it, it comes out of nowhere, and then it's over. I mean, it knocks the guy smooth out. Which right? is a much more naturalistic to this type of fight. When, you know, when you're watching the UFC or you're watching mixed martial arts, you the, you don't know the KO's coming. I mean, it, it usually comes out of nowhere. It's, yeah. it's yeah. smooth, and it looks good, and I think that is emulated very well here. Absolutely, absolutely. Alrighty, well, I think that is a great discussion of A Prayer Before Dawn. Let's come to the point where we render a verdict with this film. We all said we didn't want to watch it again, but we must say Shell for Trash Elser instead regarding its quality. So I'm curious to hear from you. Our, our, no, not Arthur. Dalton, picker of the film. I want to go to you first. So Shell for Trash, Elser instead. Look, if you're scrambling to get caught up with your 2018 releases, you can go ahead and skip A Prayer Before Dawn. Um... Dustin's going to disagree with me. Maybe he's probably pretty happy I made him catch up with it, but I am. I think uh, unless you always agree with Dustin about everything he ever says on this show, you might want to go ahead and skip a prayer before dawn. Now, I, that's kind of a soft trash. I don't think it's a, a terrible film. I think it's a very, I think it's a great film. Honestly, it's just not fun to watch. And whether or not Billy's journey uh, warrants being forced to sit through an hour of hell on earth is, you know, dealer's choice, man. It, it's your brain. Choose what you put in it. Um, I'm not going to recommend you watch it because it's frankly very unpleasant, and I wouldn't force this movie on anybody. Uh, it's not a good time, but it's also incredibly well made. So I don't know. 
That's a, a very soft trash or a soft shelf, depending on how you want to look at it. What should you pair with it? The much more interesting question. I'm going to say you check out another 2018 film that I caught up with this weekend, The Long Dumb Road, starring Tony Revolori and Jason Manzukis. Uh, it, it's a film that ans- asks these questions about, you know, what is at the what is this wanderer spirit at the root of uh, a lot of our toxic masculinity myths? Uh, what is this thing that makes young men want to go out and experience the world uh, without any, uh, you know, guardrails on? Uh, and I, I think it's just a, a much sweeter film. It's a much more conventional film, sure. Uh, but it's also, I don't know. It's not shocking to see uh, violence in a prison film. It is shocking to see beautiful landscape shots in a uh, in a road comedy. Uh, it, it's unsurpri- It's unsurprising to see what we see on camera in a prayer before dawn. The things that I you see on camera in uh, the long dumb road are surprising. So I, I think it's a, a much more essential viewing uh, for. You know, exploring masculine identities in 2018. Uh, I'm also going to recommend Creed. Uh, just one of the best fight movies of the last 20 years. One of the best American films of the last 20 years. It's an absolute achievement uh, of filmmaking. It, studio movies don't get to be that good that often. Uh, and I am still looking forward to catching up with Creed too. And finally, look, if you're watching weird prison movies, especially about English prisoners, you got to check out Bronson starring Tom Hardy. Uh, It's the star making turn and uh, just as arty as a prayer before dawn, but in a much different way and uh, a lot more fun to watch. So those are going to be my recommends to pair with this movie. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Appreciate that very much. Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you Um, shelf for trash elsewhere instead? I'm with Dalton here. It's very soft trash. It just doesn't, do it for me i i i, I never really connected and uh so i i would say that as well there are some other movies i think you should rather catch up on uh for 2018 one of them being the writer uh from earlier in this year which uh is getting some heard nothing love. but good things about it. Uh, it's a great film it, it does a lot of the same things it's never quite as you know removed or you know uh as this one but it, it's doing all those kind of realism uh elements it's kind of a a fictionalized semi-documentary film. It, it's using real people. It uses a real family uh, a, a, as the characters of the crux. You know, it's a real father, a real son, and a real sister as, are the key family in this film. Uh, and it's really exploring a lot of those ideas of masculinity and, and you know, what does it mean to be a man in, in this world where some tools have been removed from my, you know, manhood skill set, you know, quote-unquote. Uh, and, and it's just a very, very engaging, beautiful uh, at times tragic and at times very life affirming movie. Um, and so I would definitely recommend the writer. I think you think about fighters in prison, you think about Reuben Carter, you think about hurricane. Uh, and you know, we've flirted with that idea several times of doing it on the show. Uh, but I think it's one that, you know, pairs well here with the Denzel's performance is great. And it's, it's engaging with some interesting ideas of race and, uh, and, and just the American prison system and, and those different things and, and, uh, civil rights, uh, and finally, uh, if you just need to kind of cleanse your palate and, and wash all of this uh, very heavy uh, mood and tone out of your uh, out of your system, you'll, you'll watch The Longest Yard uh, if you want to talk about athletes in prison. Fair enough. Uh, and I, I haven't seen the original. I've only seen Sandler's remake. Uh, but I, I think it is, uh, you know, for a Sandler film, one of his uh, stronger latter uh, uh, films. And so I would definitely... Uh, recommend that as just a palate cleanser after dealing with some of these heavier films. All righty. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to, they've both said soft, soft trashes. I'm going to soft shelf. 
um, which is hard to soft say. Soft shell? Soft, soft cell. Soft shell. Crab, you, you, sometimes damn it, you beat it. me to it. Yeah, if you go up to Maryland at the uh, right time uh, of year, you get a bucket of them for real cheap. Okay. So, <laughs> I was thinking um, tainted love is what I was thinking. Uh, soft, soft cell. cell. As gotcha. I was trying to say. You know, Arthur and I are just thinking about shellfish. Uh, indeed. Oh, shellfish is good. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a soft shelf, uh, for me. And I like it, um, and I think it, I think there's a, you know, there's a famous quote about cinema being an empathy machine. And there is a way in which this film forces you into a moment where you empathize with prisoners, where you empathize with, uh, the plight of addicts, where you empathize with, um, those who are on the margins of society because of their sexuality and their gender identities. And so there, there are ways in which I think as an empathy moment, it's very unpleasant and very uncomfortable, but that's a good thing because most... Empathy is unpleasant and uncomfortable sometimes. Absolutely. And, and and many people experience very, very unpleasant and uncomfortable circumstances and situations, and it, there's a way in which we become better people from doing that. But that is sort of like telling you to eat your vegetables. So there is that, and that's fair. Um, what else? I, I recommend... If this movie were a vegetable, what vegetable would it be? Discuss. Asparagus? Uh, beets. Yeah, I, just a big old bowl of 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 steamed root vegetables of uh, dubious origin. Brussels sprouts, just, perhaps. I had yeah. Brussels sprouts for dinner. I Not like. the tasty charred kind, just like steamed. Just the steamed, just like soft, old, mushy, old, old people like vegetables. Mush, sulfur, yeah. Brussels sprouts. It's the broccoli stems, not the oh, not the not flowers. Florets. Oh Ugh. man, gross. Ugh. Um, but yeah, I think you should watch again everything my co-hosts have recommended, and I would add uh, only God forgives um, as well. Yeah. Which also, um, the warden is the uh, big bad uh, from yeah. that particular film, the only uh, recognizable actor other than Joe Cole. So uh, yeah, there is. Uh, if you happen to have seen that movie, he's recognizable because um, I don't I, know. His I don't watch a lot of Thai cinema, so I, I don't know. I have no idea actually. So um, those are our recommends. We didn't even talk about this. That's how much there is to talk about a prayer before dawn. Speaking of Thai actors, you guys know most of the actors this movie are real prisoners oh really yeah former that's, or and or current that's why they all that's, look like the yakuza yeah they were shot in it that was shot in a real prison yeah man yeah it's rough uh, i hope joe cole's doing okay part of my uh, part of my impetus impetus for uh, rec- uh recognizing the writer oh yeah mm-hmm. because yeah. of that realism element. yeah very good point. Fair enough. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on a prayer before dawn. Um, it is um what it is. Uh, let's and we've had a great conversation about it. Now we're gonna do one more 2018 release. That's right. But not a blind spot. That's the movie. That I think we've all saw. seen it. I, I think in the a, world. It, yeah, it, it's a sight spot. It, yes, it is a it is a beacon of uh, beacon of blinding light at the top of it a giant indeed. tower. A uh, you might call it an Avengers tower. You could, uh, if you w- would like to. Uh, call it that you could. You could also call it uh, d- Disney Tower. You, uh, you, you could, could also call it a pile of money. You just uh, Scrooge you McDuck's could call it giant a pile of something. Well, well we're not going that. to. Some I'm of us not. might. So yeah, we're, we're spoiler gonna, alert. Yeah, some of us respect serialized filmmaking, and uh, that is not true. And mass culture. Some of us love genre film that you know. Mr. I'm too good I for your genre film. I'm films. too good for mass culture, and I don't think it has anything to say about anything. That's what I say. <laughs> That's what we're gonna we're gonna find out next week. You have never I can't remember the last time you liked a schlocky genre film on this show. I, I can't. I just can't I place can't either. it. I, I, did, man. I like the Outlaw King. I, the Outlaw King. Which is schlocky. Did you trash film? that one? Okay. 
the outlaw king is midbrow. Look, Demolition Man was right there, okay, and you didn't and I, jump I, on that bullet. I love Demolition Man. I know okay. that was the joke, yeah, Dustin. He was, he, was, oh, he was trying to tease you. Okay, uh, but Dustin has an aversion to this this sort of uh, mass-produced studio filmmaking, uh, which is fair. He hates fun. He does. I, I don't hate fun. But we've we've looked at some underseen 2018 films. And I hate the colonization and commercialization of my imagination. Well. It's time to talk about it because it happens to every generation. Uh, sometimes it's. <laughs> to every generation, a um, commodity is born. Yeah. Sometimes <sighs> it's an epic by Homer, and sometimes it's an epic by Kevin Feige. Uh, next week, Avengers Infinity War, 2018's highest grossing film? Probably. Probably. Oh, no, I think Black Panther beat it somewhere, out. Somewhere between the two. Domestic and worldwide is different, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway. Not important. We're watching Infinity War next week uh, because Arthur and I have been wanting to talk about it on this show because we think there's things to be said and we want to make Dustin mad. And they've done both of those things. Yeah. So there you go, dear listener. Um, it's all about the conversation. Even when a movie is not particularly, you know, pleasant to experience, as is the case uh, with uh, A Prayer Before Dawn, there's a lot of conversation to be had. And when it is so pleasant, it hides all the poison like Avengers Infinity War. Um, a conversation can always be had. And that's what we do here. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I don't feel so good, Dustin. Thank you for tuning into the Good Trash Genrecast, a product of Good Trash Media. For more Good Trash content, head over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro this week is, as always, an original composition by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers. No, not that Aaron Rodgers. And our outro this week is none other than Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. <laughs> <laughs>